Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Dodge Woodall, founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. Ever since events across the world came to a grinding halt, I've been bringing people back together, but in a different way. Hello, and welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur podcast. This episode is a follow-up to the story covered in episodes 1, 4, 7 and 18, where we've discussed the journey of the eventful entrepreneur himself. I'm producer Dan and I'm here with Mr. Dodge Woodall. How are you, Dodge? I'm very good, mate. Very good. Looking forward to this. Yeah, it's been a while since we sat down and chatted through your story, hasn't it? It has. It has. It's been a what? Well, yeah, it's been a it's been many months, I think. Yeah, we've been trying to work through a, a queue of keen guests, haven't we? <laughs> Absolutely. It's been amazing, uh, but we're we're back here to talk about your journey. Uh, in the last chapter of your story, we chatted about the critical years between 2009 and 2012 when Bournemouth Sevens Festival began its long period of growth. It wasn't all smooth sailing though so I'd recommend going back and listening to episodes 1, 4, 7 and 18 if you haven't already. But today we'll cover the following years where some big changes and challenges took place. So let's start with 2013. We ended the last chapter in fact uh, talking about a situation you refer to as your David and Goliath. Can you give us some background on what happened there? Um, yeah, David and Goliath. It was, wow, 2013. Um, we had a contract signed. Um, a new managing director came into the company for, I can't mention the name. This was a sponsor, right? Yeah, a sponsor. Yeah. So a sponsor, a sponsor had a, had, we had a contract with a sponsor and the old CEO left the company. The new CEO came in and didn't think uh, their company was aligned with our festival at the time and didn't want to carry on the contract. Mm. Didn't have the same vision as the previous CEO. Yeah, it didn't have the same vision. Going back to anything in sponsorship, you know, when you are dealing with sponsors, you have to make sure that the CEO, the managing directors has an interest in, well, for me personally, it was it was rugby, mm. you know, and a new CEO coming in is obviously cutting costs and what have you, didn't have an interest in rugby and thought, hold on a minute, why are we carrying on with this contract? Let's get out of it. And when they're a big company like that and they've got, one of the biggest, deepest pockets in the world, They've, I guess they feel they can do what they want. But you saw that your contract meant that he couldn't do that legally, right? Well, yeah, yeah. But you know what? You know, everyone says, you know, whoever win, most people who win a court case are the ones with deeper pockets. Mm. But I didn't agree with that. You know, I'm very much a principal person, as you know, Dan. And if I feel I was in, you know, had had weight on my side, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go for this and, and, and fight my corner. How did you do that? They basically wanted to pull out the contract and I said, okay, we'll see you in court. They were hoping you would back down as soon as they yeah. said, we'll see you in court. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They're hoping I was back down. And you know what? Again, I still, I still go back to the pressure that was on us at that time. It was humongous. It was huge. And what we didn't want as a family, especially my wife, was to have more pressure put on us by having a court case with one of the biggest companies in the world. Mm. Um <laughs> So you had to hire lawyers, I suspect, uh, look into where you stood. I, I suppose you got advice before you went to court? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you, you straight away you go to a, a lawyer and you speak to them and say, this is this is where we stand. And, you know, as more, most lawyers say, they'll never give you a definitive answer saying, oh, yeah, you're going to win this. Mm. It's like, oh, you know, you could, you couldn't. And they leave you hanging. And I hadn't had much uh, experience with lawyers, if I'm honest with you. It wasn't my bag. I didn't want to get involved in all this. But, I, you know. It was a lot of money to us, number one. And number two, it was it was principal. I've spoken to you about this before. You're willing to take it all the way 
I was. My wife wasn't. Yeah. So there's a bit, a bit of a, not a battle, but a bit of a, you were pulling in different directions kind of there because Flora is traditionally a bit risk averse, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's very risk averse and I, I'm not. And, you know, you had to, I was going home and Flora was like, why are you bothering this? Just just walk away from it. Walk away from it. I was like, no, I'm not walking away from this. Why should I? I don't care if they're worth billions of dollars of pounds and mm. we're just, you know, the David and the Goliath and we're the little David who should just take it on the chin. No, I'm not going to do that. Purely principle, I'm not going to do that. This kind of goes back to things we've discussed in previous episodes about you not taking no for an answer. Yeah. They've, yeah. they've said no even after saying yes and signing on the dotted line. Yeah. And you're not taking that as an answer. Do you answer. know what, though, Dan? Just racking my brains as you're talking here now, it's made me think that I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. But what I did know what I was letting myself for, every bloody letter that was going from the lawyer was a couple of grand. Mm. A couple of grand was a lot of money to us. So. The other company, the Goliath, were knowing that they were just sending letters back for answers off us, and we had to send letters back. For them, it was a drop in the ocean. But to us, every time, it's like, it's another two grand. It's another two grand. And it was, and this was all racking up and racking up with the, with the thought process in that we could be spending all this money, and then if we went to court and we lost, we have to pay their, their lawyer's fees and everything else that goes mm. on and lose ours while trying to juggle a festival with all this, all this going on in the background, again, it was it was really stressful for for Fleur. So big risk, but obviously on principle, when obviously you know what you're owed and and what you've been offered, and now they they're trying to pull out of it, even though you've got a contract in yeah. place. Why do you think they let it get that far before before backing down? <laughs> it's a good question, mate. It's uh, I reckon they realised that they might be dealing with someone who didn't care. Bring it on. Did you think they didn't think you would take it that far and yeah. just give up and then yeah, they could walk away? I reckon they've done it to many people over the years or big companies have done that, push people away by just giving them the fear of, okay, we'll keep going sending lawyers letters, keep sending lawyers letters, but I wasn't having it. I wasn't having it, Dan. And it got to a point where they realised that I wasn't having this and they didn't know how much money we had or how much money we didn't have and we didn't have a lot of money back then to be spending out two grand a letter every time and mm. it was just dragging on over months and months. At the same time, this was going on. We got a festival in three months. And, and bearing in mind, this wasn't just like a, a like a tent sponsor or anything. Like, this was a headline sponsor, was it? This not? was this was a major sponsor. Yeah. yeah, names can't be names can't be mentioned. Yeah, yeah. This was a major sponsor. It got to a point where I think they realised that okay, let's take this to court, and that was the final letter, and that was the bit where to say okay, well, let's take it to court then. Mm. And that was the bit when they told me that and I went back and said take it to court and that's the bit they said okay can we can we uh, instead of going to court can we see one final last chance of using a mediator fine which was again it was a new experience for me but I was excited by it Dan do you know this was excitement because this was the opportunity that I didn't know what mediation was I didn't know I didn't know what a mediator was but actually we had to go and meet for the first time in nine months we had to go and meet at this uh, hired venue I think it was in Reading they came from London, we come from Bournemouth, we had to meet in this hired venue and there was a lawyer there. And you go walk into this room and I've got uh, myself, uh, my wife Fleur, Sophie, my managing director, and our lawyer. And they've got their lawyer and the top man of the company there, who he's representing. So um, a very odd situation because we're you've got to remember for nine months you're bouncing back and forward just on, uh, just on, lawyers letters we don't know what they look like mm -hmm. we don't know who they are and we were in this routine for 10 minutes and the lawyers went at each other and they got put in a separate room so we're all in a separate room they're in a separate room there's a lawyer a mediator coming into our room and saying 
um, just to let you know that they're not going to pay you anything. I was like, well, what's the point of being here if they're not going to pay anything? The whole point is that we we're going to settle on something or agree on something, mm. you know, to mediate. So then he would then go back into their room and say, well, they're not accepting nothing. So this went on for two hours, back and forth. He's back and forth in these rooms. I, I was sitting there going, well, just tell him straight. Why don't I just go and see him? Mm. Why don't I just walk into my room now? I'll go and see him and talk to him. It wasn't allowed. So that was going to be one of my questions because anyone who knows you will know that usually to sort anything out, you'd usually just pick up the phone and speak to the man who makes the decisions, yeah. right? That's your instinct. Yeah. And th that wasn't possible in this case, I take it. It wasn't possible for the whole nine months leading up to this. Mm. And it was frustrating because I was like, you know, you can see who wins here. And every time there's a court case, the only people that win are the lawyers because they're charging 300 quid an hour or whatever whatever the costs were, plus VAT. And, you know, and every time you send them a, an email, they'll pin that down as an extra 30 quid for just reading your email. It, it just racked up and racked up. Yeah. So this went on for the first two hours in this mediation, nothing. I thought, I'm, I'm not going to leave here until we can sort something out. And then after two hours, he come back in and it eased up and went, well, he's offered half of the money. So very politely go back to him and said, I'm not interested in it. An hour later, back and forward, he's offered you this, offered you that. Got to a point, I was like, this is ridiculous. Well, I'm wasting my time. Should we just leave now? And um, he then come back in and said, he's offered you X. And that was the point I went, this is the last minute. If he doesn't come and see me now, I don't go and see him. I'm walking out of here and let's just go to court. You know, but at that time, you know, the two girls with me, my wife and Sophie, were like, just take it. Mm. <laughs> just take so it. So this was still a fraction of what they owed you, and you were like, no, unless I yeah. speak But the fraction that. got, the percentage got higher and higher and yeah. higher. Yeah. But I still was adamant that I wanted the money and I wanted my lawyer's fees covered mm. because you've put me and my wife and our business under so much pressure. And, you know, you, you, you've made decisions on, let's just squash them. They're mm. tiny little company. Let's just squash them, yeah. you know, compared to them. So, mm. so, um, it got to a point, it got to the it got to the 11th hour. I said, well, I'm just going to walk out now. I've had enough of this, I'm bored. And he came back in and said, yeah. I said to him, tell him one last thing. I want to meet him now as I'm going. And he said, okay, yeah, he just accepted to come and meet. So I went into a room with him and um, he offered me his final deal. So I'm not accepting it. So the media said, go back to the girls and see if they'd accept that. So I went back to the girls and said, look, there's an offer here. It's a really good offer. So what do you want to do? And they were like, just take it now. Just take it. <laughs> I was like, no. So I went back in. I said, um, thank you very much for the offer, but unless it's this offer, including our lawyer's fees, I'm literally going to walk out of here now and we're done. And uh, he agreed to it. So I went back and saw the girls and there was tears. The emotion was everywhere. It was just ecstatic. It was draining. Every emotion you can imagine. Also for those, for the girls really, because they went through this whole process of what it could have the knock-on effect to our business. Yeah. You know, sleepless nights and whatever. But I was just, I was on a mission, mate. And you got the result. I got the result. And do you know the beauty of it, Dan? I went back in the room and um, the contracts are there. So you could both got a contract there. And and the lawyer was like, thank you ever so much. You know, because the lawyer's done his job. So he's happy. Thank you ever so much for agreeing on this deal. It's wonderful for both parties. It's all cleaned up now and we can all move on with our lives, etc." And I remember he had like two pieces of paper there. And I looked at the other guy who, who agreed the deal. And at the end, the lawyer gave him this pen. It was like this big silver bullet pen. I felt like I could do bicep curls with it. It was that heavy. And um, I got it. I said, what have I got to do? And he said, I want your signature there and your signature there. And I remember like a slow motion. I still remember it in my head now. There's like slow motion, pen, super heavy. And I remember thinking, well, how would the queen write it? And I'd do these massive squiggles that took up like double the space where I was meant to fill in my name and stuff. And and yeah, we did that. And he signed it and I signed it. And um, I looked him in the eye and I shook his hand and I was like, Thank you, mate. I'm glad the deal's done. And uh, 
the funny thing is, as I did that, as I finished that, and I knew that we had that piece of paper signed, I was like, just, um, I'd just like to invite you and your wife or your other half as my VVIP guest to the festival in a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> Those are expensive tickets. <laughs> yeah, they were expensive tickets. But you know what? He laughed. He understood. You've got to remember, it wasn't his money he's playing around with. He's just acting on behalf of a company, and mm. he got it. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a lot of pressure, Dan. Again, you know, all... When you got festivals, there was pressures all over at every angle coming in every mm. angle, and this was just something that went on for nine months that we didn't need, but you know we we did it, and I was happy. Anyone who's listened to previous episodes will understand kind of the pressure building up to this. So this is just another add-on to that. Yeah. Um, did did this whole palaver uh, change how you dealt with sponsors in the future? Like, did you tighten up your agreements, look for more reassurances? No, no, no. I deal with all our sponsors. I deal with them face to face. Everyone's good. We have good relationships. It's just because a new guy come in and was told. Mm cut the money, I guess, or it doesn't align with what we're doing. But all the sponsors I've had over the years, we've got such amazing relationships because we're we're real. We say how it is, we work together. Let's create a women situation. And that's what we've done over the years. And that's why we've had so many sponsors and still do. And this might sound a bit weird, but would you work with that brand again? <laughs> God, you put me on the spot there. Um, if they're offering what, that money. Yeah, but yeah, oh, I don't know about that, mate. Um, yeah, I probably would. Of course I would. I don't know grudges, mate. It was done. It's done deal. It's finished. You know, but yeah, I would. Nice. <laughs> they come back <laughs> <laughs> now as as well as legal battles 2013 saw your sixth edition of Bournemouth Sevens yeah. has the kind of pressure 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 during the build up kind of dissipated at this point no no okay so it's still quite intense <laughs> yes yeah. yes because you you know I look back at 2013 you've really made me think Dan but 2013 was an absolute bumper year for us everything everything we ticked every box we, we had the most amount of sponsors we were for four or five months going back and forth. We had a, a court hearing with basically when you're going, when you're putting in for your license, you want a bigger license, you go okay. to the council and an application, an application yeah. and then you go and sit in a room and there's councillors in there and there's people who may object to it and there's people who are for it and mm -hmm. you get a decision that night. And, you know, while all this was going on, I was also juggling with the team trying to get a bigger license so we can get more people at the festival because mm -hmm. we'd sold out the year before. So... And we won that as well. So everything was just ticking, ticking along. All the boxes were being ticked leading up to this festival. And it was just a, it was a bumper year of people. You know, we got a bigger license and we sold out as well. You know, and um, yeah, it was great, mate. It really was great. On top of that, we've we've obviously talked about the Viper 10 journey quite extensively in episode seven. Uh, but can you tell us how it felt at this point when you're at a festival you created yeah. and it's filled with people wearing sportswear you created? <laughs> yeah. how, how did that feel? That was amazing as well, mate. Because we had a whole year. We launched the year before with Viper 10, but we had a whole year this year leading into 2013 that... Those 400 teams, those 5,000, 6,000 players all wanted hoodies, all wanted playing kit. We had our own sportswear brand. And that year in 2013, everyone had our hoodies and kits, kit on. It was phenomenal to mm. see. That's incredible. It, it was incredible. Yeah. It was literally incredible. Everyone turning up on Friday night with all their stash on, all their kit, all the players turn up in the campsite. And it just was incredible. And that weekend walking around the festival... You know, everyone's like, what's this Viper 10? Because everyone knew they bought it, but they didn't realise that everyone was wearing it with all the mm. different designs and different colours. And that was an amazing feeling knowing that you'd created a, created a sportswear brand as a bolt-on because you had this audience. And I go, you know, I go back down and say, when you've got a business, see, you know, utilise the audience you've got and see what else you can add on to, you know, to 
to create more revenue streams. Mm. Because that, we, again, we, we covered it in a previous episode, but that strategy of you've got this audience, not, not necessarily a captive audience, but you've got this audience of sports people and you've got a product that you think they will respond to well. And this is your first sign that it worked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That was literally, I can bottle that feeling. Mm. You know, absolutely bottle that feeling. And it was just, uh, it was just like I see people's faces because we created such amazing hoodies, like the super comfiest hoodies you could ever have. You know, that was our, that was our uh, flagship item. I still wear those hoodies. Yeah, they still go in. I <laughs> yeah. see them everywhere around the country, yeah. different parts of the country, see everyone wearing them and stuff. But that was a brilliant, brilliant feeling. But you know what was another great feeling in 2013 is that over the years, 28, uh, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, you've got all these players coming in and I'm still learning the business model and I'm still tweaking and improving in different areas. Mm. But the main party on the Friday used to be on the campsite. We'd put a marquee up there and a bar in 2008 and a stage. And then it outgrew that. We made that bigger and bigger each year and it outgrew that. Then we went into the car park and created a humongous marquee tent there. Everyone had the Friday night players party. And 2013 was the year we actually took people into the main festival arena which we use for Saturday and Sunday. And we got a big top dance tent there and we put everyone in there, 3,000 campers in that big top dance tent on the Friday and it just went off. Mm. So 2013 was a, a real memorable year for me personally. And people still, their introduction to the festival, if they've never been to before, going to that Friday night players party is just, oh, it's off the scale, yeah. isn't it? Well, you've got, you're around like-minded people. You've got all the players there, all travelled down from different parts of the country, from from Cardiff to Edinburgh to Leicester, from Manchester to all over the place, London, Exeter. Everyone's coming in for their end-of-season tour. Mm. You know, it's just... It's all like-minded people, like we mentioned before, all like-minded people. All like -minded that's people, what creates yeah. the, the atmosphere, yeah. isn't it? All the netballers, all the hockey, all the rugby, all the dodgeball players, all the volleyball players, you know, and uh, yeah, great feeling, great feeling. So 2013, all in all, quite a success. A huge success. But do you know what? Just, a, you know, with all this pressure being put on and, and you know, two months before the festival and then you're, you know... When you're putting on a festival, the biggest thing, festival, and you can't control is the weather. Yeah. And I remember it on Saturday about midday and um, the phone was ringing again and the, the, the earpieces were going and the, and the walkie-talkies were going. And all of a sudden at midday, I was had this message coming through going, oh, there's a red red alert weather warning. And I thought, oh, what's that mean? It doesn't sound good. <laughs> it so doesn't, I, sound, it good doesn't sound good, mate. And uh, I was like, oh, well, here we go. Another bit of, you know, another thing that could cause a problem. And um, it was in Exeter and it was tonking down with rain in Exeter. And then you've got back then in 2013, the, the app uh, Met Office. So you had it on your phone. So you're like, oh, no. And you can see you can see it coming closer and closer and closer. And when there's a red alert weather warning, you've got to make sure all the 150 security, all this 800 staff, everyone is aware that high winds are coming in, high rain and torrential. You've got to make sure that, that, that everyone's safe. Mm. You don't know what's going to go flying or you don't know what's going to happen with fences collapsing maybe or whatever it may be. Oh, high winds is, is one of the worst things oh, for a festival. High, oh, you think tents yeah. and, and tall rides and yeah. things like that, it's yeah. it's terrible, right? Yeah. Worse than rain. Yeah, right? 100%, yeah, 100%. And that was coming through. I thought, oh, no. And you know what? When I moved to Bournemouth, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago, everyone was saying, Bournemouth's got a microclimate. <laughs> and I've learned over the years, you know, about this microclimate. And I was just praying to Fleur and my old man and my family were all working there as well. I hope this microclimate is true, whatever they're talking about. <laughs> so and it's coming closer, coming closer, coming closer. And there's lots of festivals that weekend. It went around Bournemouth. And then half an hour later, it did a massive dump into Portsmouth. 
<laughs> we could not believe our luck. It was a brilliant feeling then. It, it just took a turn. So it just took a turn out yeah. of nowhere. And the sun just stayed the whole weekend. Incredible. Yeah, it was. It really was like someone was looking down at us for, you know, the eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, like five years of building up. You know, it was what a, a year. Yeah, it was 2013. What a bumpy year that mm. was. Well, moving on to 2014, um, that was a very significant year for a number of reasons, uh, which we'll come on to shortly. But first, can you tell me more about your meeting with AIF or the uh, Association of Independent Festivals? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there was a there was a group set up called Association of Independent Festivals, and it was all the independent festival owners. You'd have to pay a fee there to, for, for yearly fee and you'd all meet in London. And I remember I said, okay, I might as, well, might as well join this and hopefully make some really cool people and we can all talk about our experiences as festival owners and how we can improve and how much you pay on DJs and bands and how much your security is and contacts. We, we can all share contacts and what have you. And uh, yeah, I went there and um, we're all around this um, big round table. There must have been 20 festival owners there and kind of people knew of Bournemouth Sevens there and you had your big players there, big festival owners who have been going for many years and, you know, spending fortunes and and then there was me. And um, I remember towards the end of this meeting, everyone was talking about their experiences and uh, dealing with the police and the councils and licensing and what have you. And then one of the guys chaired it, just said, can we just go around the room, please? And just out of interest, just give us a rough rough estimate how much you spend on, on live acts for, for your festivals and... I was thinking, oh, please don't start with me. Please don't start with me. And uh, it didn't start with me. So he went round the room and one festival owner went, oh, I spent three mil. I'm about to spend four mil. I spent one and a half mil. It went round to two mil. I spent five mil. It got to me and I was the last person. I was thinking, do I actually say this? Do I say this or do I just make a number up? And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to say it. And it got to me and it was like, yeah, we spend £12,000. And everyone was just in shock then. They were looking at me going, you what, 12 grand on all your DJs and acts and da, da, da. how'd you get that amount of people through the doors? And that was the turning point, Dan, when the respect of all the other festival owners, because I was in young years still, mm. you know, it's still like year five or six and it was down in Bournemouth and they they, th- they thought it was just a sports festival. Yeah. They didn't realise it was a sport music festival and what we were turning into. But I can't tell you after that, the amount of people just wanted to know more about the business model. Mm. And that was the point. And that was a massive turning point where I knew I was like, we have an amazing business model mixing, creating a sport and music festival. I think things are changing in, in recent years. I, th- I think you agree that um, headline used to be the main draw for most festivals. It's most music festivals, for example, but it's becoming a bit more about experiential. And that's kind of what Bournemouth Sevens has always done, the ex- yeah. experience, the sport, the everything else around it, not just the music. Yeah. So you didn't have to rely on a headliner. People came for everything else, yeah. right? Yeah, it was really important to me because I studied music festivals. I studied, not studied, like went to university. So I actually was just, I'm passionate about events, as you know. I'm mm. passionate about music and sport. And I wanted to bring all that together. And I was seriously passionate about breaking the business model because, you know, big festivals, big shiny festivals may look like they're earning multi-millions. They're not. They're definitely not, Dan. And, you know, ego can get in the way as festival owners saying, I'm going to put on, I'm going to book him, I'm going to book her, I'm going to book him, I'm going to book him to have all the biggest acts because you're they're all competing against each other. Yeah. For me, it was vitally important that I held this back and held it back that I didn't go for a big act. Mm. I wanted to put hundreds of DJs on and bands and music of the 
and play all the tracks and songs that everyone wanted to listen to. Mm. Local talent as well. Right? Yeah, local talent as yeah. well. It's like one, we've got amazing local talent mm. down here in Bournemouth. We've got some of the best DJs going around here. You know, it's important for me to keep it local talent mixed in with London talent coming in, but I wasn't paying big numbers for it. People wanted to be involved in a festival. We gave them a great opportunity to be involved. They're on the posters and they're a part of what we're doing. They're getting behind it. And it was really important that I wasn't, it had been quite easy for me to go and write a cheque for 50 grand for Digi Rascal. Mm. It'd be quite easy for me to go and write a cheque for 60 bags for someone else or 100 grand for someone else. But what is the point? You know, we were getting unbelievable numbers coming through the door without having to do that, which made the business a success. Mm. Going back to the AI, if everyone wanted to know the business model, yeah. they're like, how can we do that? Because the biggest pressures of a festival owner are booking all these acts because if you're just a music festival if you don't book all those acts you're not going to sell any tickets you've got nothing you've got nothing no, you've got nothing so for us it was about creating a wonderful festival experience and creating unbelievable energy as people arrived into that festival make it very colourful and have loads of entertainment loads of different festival arenas with different genres of music and just make it fun mm -hmm. and that's what we did and 2014 uh, may seem relatively recent, but uh, it, it might surprise you to know that we were still selling physical tickets this year, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was something that I'd been doing for, well, physical tickets from, from the nightclub game from 1999 to, I guess, what year we're talking now, 2014. Mm -hmm. So actually, as a festival uh, owner, it was important for me to have 100 festival ticket sellers. Mm. Out you know, on the street. Out on the street. Having their groups of friends, everyone's got, a, you know, a Facebook back then, everyone was having, you know, that age from 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, everyone would have had 700 to 1,000 Facebook friends. And I thought, well, hold on a minute, let's, let's keep it old school here. Mm. So I can't remember what our weekend tickets were back then. I don't know, did they call it, call it 50 quid? Mm. Um, I would make sure that uh, these ticket sellers at the end of the year would come to us and they'd all take 50 tickets or 100 tickets and they'd get a five or a ticket sold plus a free ticket for themselves. So it was a no-brainer for them. Mm. You know, they would earn 500 quid and we'd have different promoters coming in and they would bring on the Friday leading up to the leading up to the festival, every Friday we'd have a cash-in. So all the promoters would come to our HQ here with their, with their, with their money and it would get signed off, da-da-da-da. And, um, and one day something quite mad happened. Obviously one of the ticket sellers must have thought, well, hold on a minute, all this cash is coming into the office back then what we're talking seven years ago dan yeah seven eight years ago i think it was and we were on like um, a second or third floor our hq so anyone who wanted to break in would have to have a seriously big ladder to break in into and our windows are massive windows which you're not going to smash mm. or we had these small triple glazed windows that you could just slide someone through if you had to you know it'd been dangerous but mm. um anyway all the one year and uh, all the alarms went off at i don't know two o'clock in the morning and 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 it gets ringed to people's phones and whatever you anyway one of the one of the staff came in um rushed here and uh saw that someone had broken in into the offices into the offices where all the cash is or well where they thought the cash was oh, okay so they broke in they got a fireman's ladder which was about 30 foot 40 foot high so someone had a fireman's ladder out the ticket sellers mm. we don't know who or someone had tip someone off. They had the audacity to climb up this fireman's ladder, which was massive up to our thing. They broke in. Obviously, it was dark. And they, they, they left all the Apple computers. They opened all the drawers. And there was 
hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of tickets sprawled all, all over the floor. But they didn't take any money because we didn't keep the money in here. <laughs> we took it straight to the bank. Like any normal person would. Yeah, like any normal person. You take it to the bank and you cash it straight away. You don't leave your money in your office. But yeah, that was, that, that was, uh, that was quite weird to come into, that someone had the audacity to come and do that and tip someone off. And So did they get away with a load of tickets? Or No, they didn't take any tickets. They just, they just came in they could and have made taken, a mess. They could have taken, <laughs> you know, 100 tickets, 5,000 tickets and gone and sold all the tickets, mm. whatever you, but... You know, that was uh, that was that was an experience. Someone smashed a window and made some mess and then left. Yeah, okay. and I wasn't angry. <laughs> I literally wasn't angry. I was like, fair play to them, ballsy. <laughs> you know. Uh, moving on, you've mentioned a few times before something about a twenty thousand pound napkin, uh, which sounds a bit <laughs> random. Uh, what does that mean? Oh, mate! <laughs> I got invited to Soho House. I think it was on Greek Street um, for a long lunch. And uh, I got invited up there and they said, um, there's some faces on the table. There's, there's going to be a big round table of us, um, loads of red wine, loads of long lunch, all the top people from different different uh, sponsors and and uh, just good people, some sporting celebs there. And we just all met each other. And it was like a, a, a 12 people around a table, a lad's lunch, and it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And you had to stand up. I've never been to anything like this before, but they said, well, can you just stand up and introduce yourself? Everyone had to do it. This is what I do. <laughs> da, da, da. Everyone said it in a bit piss-takey manner, you know, and it was just a good crew of people. So we ended up tucking into the Red Vino and uh, three-course lunch, going to the bar, having a laugh. It got a bit... Um, loose. Loose. <laughs> kind of loose. Not, not really loose, but, no. you know, everyone was just let themselves go. It doesn't yeah. matter if you were the top dog of the CEO of that big London City firm or you were a big sponsor from there. Everyone was just having a crack. Mm. It was good laugh and everyone got on really well. And I sat next to Sean Fitzpatrick, yeah. who's the New Zealand legend, legend yeah. you know, 100 odd caps. Um, and we got on a house of fire. And to my, and to my other side was um, a guy from Heathrow Express who was there who had sponsored England Sevens Rugby and I'll front their shirts and mm. have you. Anyway, we started tucking in to, with the Red Vino and he was like, oh, so what sponsor you got? I said, oh, how about Heathrow Express come and sponsor Bournemouth Sevens? You know, you know, my style is when dealing with sponsors is to find out who they are. I'm going to see if they can marry something up. And It's a good fit as well. It's a great fit. They're already in the Sevens world. They're in the Sevens world. You know, Heathrow Express doesn't really come to Bournemouth, but <laughs> <laughs> I tried to tell him that there was you could do a Heathrow Express Bournemouth bus. And <laughs> yeah, wine grease those wheels. A bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, mate, we just had a right laugh. We got on really well and... And then I went to the toilet, I come back, and he'd sat down next to Sean, who we were having a right laugh with. And I sat on the other side. So we had Sean Fitzpatrick one side. We had your man from Heathrow Express in the middle and me the other side. And, and, Sean, and Sean and I were winking at each other because I think he was looking for a bit of sponsorship as well from, mm. for, for something he was doing in the rugby world. And we're winking at each other. And we're like, this is a great opportunity. And the more and more this guy had more and more red wine, the more stuff was coming out of his mouth. We're looking at each other. Me and Sean were looking at each other going, Oh my God, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and um, anyway, we just got to the point and I was like, how's about sponsoring Bournemouth Sevens? You fancy that? I think it's a bit great. You know, you're doing the rugby sevens for, you're doing the sevens for England rugby. Come and do it for the Bournemouth. We can uh, do the whole archway as you walk in. We can do a, a massive pre-event marketing. We can have wonderful branding everywhere at the festival. We can have amazing post-event marketing. And um, he started going into it again. Yeah, I'm in. And me and Sean were like bent over laughing, like, my God, are you genuinely in? He went, I'm in. And do you know what I'm going to do? Sean, I'm going to pick you up 
and I'm going to pick Dodgy up and I'm going to pick Lawrence Delalio up and some others and we're going to get a helicopter. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is this guy for real? Is he going to get a helicopter and get everyone from London? We're going to land in the middle of your pitch. And on this, before the first before the first match, I'm going to land in the middle of your pitch and we're going to get out. We're going to present the rugby ball for the first kickoff. And I was thinking, mate, this sounds amazing. How much money are we looking at for this? He said he said a figure. And I was like, so we just had a we just got on and mm. and, and it was it, it went on that conversation. I went and he was like, well, I've got to go in you know half an hour, forty five. I was like, no, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to have something signed here. We can't have any just make a random comment. You're going to do this and you're going to sponsor it and you're going to pay this amount of money, etc. Et I said, are you a man of your word? Because if you are, let's, let's handshake on it. So we all handshook on it. Myself, Sean, and and your man from Heathrow Express, and. Uh, and I said, mate, we need something a bit more than this. Something written down. So I said, waiter, waiter, any, any time you got a pen and paper? He said, I've got a pen here. I said, and we had this napkin. There was a napkin in front of us. And in, in Soho uh, House, they're not just throwaway napkins. These are like heavy, probably heavy duty white napkins. Mm, yeah. So we wrote on there and he wrote, I'm going to sponsor Bomb Sevens. We're going to get a helicopter in. We're going to do this. We're going to stay in a hotel for the weekend. Da, 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 da. I was like, wow. And he wrote all this thing and signed it. And I signed it. And then he grabs, before he left, he grabs some red wine and said, this is, this is the proof that I'm going to do and he poured some red wine on it and drizzles it on. And then he just shut off. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and me and Sean were like high-fiving and, and just finding it funny and what have you. So we swapped numbers with your man who, who left. Anyway, next morning, called him. Nothing. I thought, oh, he's, he must be really hungover. Left him voicemails, left him text messages. Hey, it was great to meet you. You know, let's get a hook up. I'll come up to London, to your HQ, or you can come down to Bournemouth, our HQ. Zero. I thought, oh no, he's woken up. I thought, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> what have I signed? What have I done? I'm going to ghost him. I'm going to ghost him. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to chase him up here. And because, you know, we shook on it. And um, when I shake on something, I'm, and I looked a man in the eye, and that's, for me, that's a good enough deal, right? And also, you don't want to take a napkin to a mediator, do you? No. <laughs> Yeah, mate, I've got this napkin. You can't really read it. You can read it. He's drawn a helicopter and all sorts. It's got a few wine stains, <laughs> wine on, it. stains on it and stuff. But um, anyway, I finally got hold of him and left messages, messages, messages. And he, one day he just picked up. I think it was like day seven. I've like, I was properly chasing him. Day mm. seven. And he went, oh, yeah. So I've been really busy. So I haven't got back to you. And like everyone does, you know, make, yeah. make a big excuse. I was, I was cool with it. I went, how about we meet? You know, this Monday coming, we'll meet at the Cabbage Patch, Twickenham. You know where that is, don't you? Near the stadium. So everyone goes, we have a couple of Guinnesses and have a chat. See how we can move this on and create a create a win-win situation, structure a nice deal and what have you. So I turned up and I thought, turn up, I had a couple of Guinnesses. I had one Guinness and was, it was two o'clock in the afternoon, 2.30. I kind of was halfway through my Guinness. I was really trying to ride this pint of Guinness out in case he <laughs> turned up and nothing. Gave him a text message, just wanted, didn't want to harass him, just wanted to be polite and hey where are you mate where are you nothing phoned him phone off phone off four o'clock still sitting there thinking oh this is he stood me up you're joking me don't stand me up <laughs> like a first date or something yeah, you know I've been there <laughs> yeah been there we all have <laughs> and um, anyway he randomly randomly called me so I'm really sorry I'm stuck in traffic I'll be there in 15 15 minutes gone nothing half an hour gone and he turned up wow so we had a couple more Guinnesses and and we done the deal We've done the deal. We literally done the deal. We created a win-win situation. Heathrow Express. We gave them. A, we did. We created a wonderful package for them, and um, yeah, it was a huge success for both parties. 
Didn't get the helicopter though, right? No, he didn't do the helicopter. <laughs> he actually did say, God, did I write did I write the helicopter? I said, mate, forget it. Don't worry about the helicopter. Just um write a check. Have you still got the napkin? Have you still got the napkin? I don't know where the napkin is. Oh, I think it's in my loft. Oh, right. I think it's in my loft. It'd be great to see it if you When we move it. house or something like that, I'm yeah. sure it'll all come out. Yeah, nice. It would actually be great to take a photo of that and find that. Yeah, say, whack it? that up on the social yeah. if you can find it. Yeah. Now, next, we've come to a, a huge moment in, in your life and Fleur's life um, when uh, little Alfie was born. Firstly, how did that feel and how did it change your life? Just get a healthy baby, mate. Little baby boy, Alfie, come into our lives and um, it was a game changer. Mm. Did it change your outlook on work? Did did it make you know, some people are less willing to take risks when they become a parent? Did did you find yourself a bit more averse to risk or no? no? <laughs> <laughs> so you want that much change? No, no. it was a change because you had a little boy in your life, and what it probably done was, you know, you are working now. I don't know what year we're talking now. Twenty fourteen. So I've been grafting hard for a good. 15, 16 years, full on graft. And this was the point that made me go, whoa, slow down now. Mm. Got a little boy, spend some time, more time, and give him give him as much love as you possibly can. And that's what we did. And and, and we took, that was the year we, we took a step back from the festival. We'd built the festival up now, I think it was year six or seven. Got a wonderful team in place. There was a team of seven of us. You know, when people look in at our festival, people think there must be a team of 30, 40 of you putting on this beast. Mm. You know, there's seven full-time staff. And I wanted to keep it nimble. I wanted to make sure that the business model worked. I wanted to make sure that all the seven staff felt um, a part of it, that they were entrepreneurs within the company, that they felt it was theirs. And um, yeah, that was the year where, where, where Fleur and I were just went traveling um, and went on as many holidays as possible and enjoyed family life. Yeah, proper family time. Yeah, it was, mate. It, really it, was. it changes your perspective, doesn't it, as a, as a parent on, on work-life balance. And, and you had the opportunity that a lot of people would love to kind of take that step back for temporarily as, as it was because yeah. I think this year you've or the last year you've come back with, yeah. <laughs> with a bit of a bang yeah. um, but yeah. but just to take a little time out in those formative years for, for a little while yeah I agree yeah. agree man it was wonderful and we travelled a lot you know we're lucky enough to have a brilliant team in place they had a lot of trust I gave them a lot of trust they had a lot of faith in me a lot of faith in them and it just worked it really did work Another significant moment, probably not so much, uh, which we've covered in the pod, pod previously, was getting some decent product placement thanks to some big names <laughs> adorning some Viper 10 garb. Yeah. How did they come about? Yeah, it actually was amazing. So I think that was year two, uh, yeah, year two of Viper 10 sportswear. And um, Hello Magazine, Pippa Middleton. She was like the face at the time, wasn't she? Oh, not face, I think. Oh, yeah, the wrong yeah. word. <laughs> <laughs> she was extremely well known for a, a, a physique and yeah. being the sister of um, stealing the show at the uh, at uh, the, the wedding, William and Kate. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And anyway, she was um, went cycling and she was snapped with Viper Ten clothing on. And, and she, she was like really hot in the news and stuff. Really hot yeah. in the news. Yeah. And talk about product placement. That was uh, probably the best you could have got at that time for free. But uh, good old Lewis tried to beat her on those stakes, didn't he? Yeah, Lewis did. Lewis did amazingly well. So this is Lewis Moody, um, obviously, I think retired at this point, right? Uh, yeah, he'd retired at this yeah. point and he was on board as an ambassador with Viper 10. Mm -hmm. um, he was the ex-England captain. He'd been with Nike for God knows how many years. He was a proper face. You know, we, him and I went to Nike Town up in London and there was this like, 40 meter billboard of his face and body up there wearing this England kit with Nike. And we went up there once and did a, they gave us um, a trolley each that you could go around and just do supermarket sweep and chuck whatever you want in your size and you can have for free. What we used to have a, such a laugh. Anyway, he came on board with Viper 10, uh, Viper 10 and 
you know, he was on BBC TV. He was on all the front pages of magazines everywhere. He was being interviewed on ITV and Sky. He had Viper 10 on, on his chest. He had hoodies on, he had jackets on and couldn't have had a better ambassador, mate. And a top man with it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He, he managed to, uh, even when he wasn't supposed to, um, put some Viper 10 jackets on uh, on the BBC, which yeah, is, is, is uh, known for its aversion to uh, to product placement. So that's, In that's front of 10 one. million people. <laughs> yeah. In a BBC, if you're going on at half time as a commentator, they're saying you, you're not wearing any branding. He mm. went on at half time, no branding. Three, two, one. You're on air live. <laughs> He's got his full jacket on with Viper 10 on there. He was just, mate, he was, he was a class act. Now, Dodge, we can't talk about 2014 without talking about the first time the microclimate failed you. <laughs> um, you've had a decent dry spell of festivals until this point, but this year was the end of that. And it didn't just rain, did it? It, it literally poured down. Oh, mate, it tonked down on the Saturday. Mm. Tonked down. So when you've, got a, when you've got a festival, you know, coming into these years now with the apps and whatever you, as a promoter and as an owner you're looking every day so our our festival is always the end of may apart from this year coming up because of covid <laughs> but it's always end of may so always from the first of may i'm looking at the weather and one day you're high one day you're low one day you're high you're high you're high one day you're low it's going to rain the weather forecast hasn't got a clue no they still haven't got a clue if they haven't the got a clue you, 24 hours yeah, before yeah the day before you so can't rely but on back it. then I still went with the emotion of up and down, pending what the weather forecast was telling me. Yeah, it was. I remember Saturday afternoon, and it just come through very quickly, and I mean poured down mm. like torrential. And I remember sitting in the stand, and I had my walkie-talkie. I sat in the stand, and I was just looking out, going, "This could be the end of this festival. Is this? Are we doomed? Are people going to turn up? What is going to happen?" Because I'm talking torrential. I'm not talking like. I'm talking. It wasn't just rain where you go, whack the wellies on, whack a jacket on, away you go. This was whack three hoodies on, put put a couple of jackets on, put some waterproof trousers on. Yeah. You know, you got to stay dry because if you do get seriously wet, you're going to be unhappy for the rest of the day. For the customers, this is. For our, you know, people coming to, coming. I remember sitting in the stand and for about two hours going, oh my God. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call from, from my wife going, oh my God, we've never seen the bars take at 12 o'clock midday going so high. I was like, you what? Everyone come into the festival. They still came. Everyone came. I thought they weren't going to come. I thought they were going to wait at home till five, six or seven when the rain had stopped. People still came and just went straight to all the all the bars and just were dancing and having fun. and Getting their beer jackets getting on. Getting their beer jackets on, <laughs> getting the beer goggles on. And <laughs> just, having, just having a crack. And it, that was the year it proved to me <clears throat> that the festival is weatherproof because mm. I'd never been tested before. Mm. Again, another factor that can that plays with you yeah. being a known festival so i wouldn't change it for the world because the amount of highs you get versus the amount of lows yeah massively is outweighed well i was there as a punter that year and i i have to say it was honestly and this isn't me just bigging it up it was honestly one of my favorite festival experiences i'd never been to a festival that had such a, a downpour on it before <laughs> um and there was something about the madness of it all. Everybody ankle deep in mud, yeah. in their wellies, yeah. sodden through. Yeah. Uh, it helped that I was wearing double denim and hot pants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're one man, six foot six, and 19 stone can get away with that. <laughs> uh, but it just made the atmosphere incredible. Everyone just took it in their stride. And I think there's something about the sporting side of Bournemouth Sevens that just people just get on with it. Yeah. They're used to getting dirty yeah. and, and it, it just created an inc incredible atmosphere. And I, I always remember that festival. It as did. A Do you know what I remember as well on that Saturday? is that Sunday was scorching hot. Yeah. Scorching hot. But the whole walkways where everyone would walk, 
because it's so wet and sunken down, it was just solid mud. Mm. It was just, un- it was it was like, talk about total contrast. Yeah. And I do remember after that festival that we had to pay to get all the ground repaired, which was a big bill for us, which wasn't a nice feeling either. So mm. there are knock-on effects and, you know. Not so much weatherproof as, as weather resilient, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah weather resilient. But I, w- I would take it all day long because... People were loving it. Yeah. It really, it went down a storm with the mm. punters. I'm sure there were it did. massive knock-on effects. It was really weird because I just yeah. thought, you know, I'm a person who likes to ski in the sun mm. or play golf when it's when it's not raining or go to a festival when it's not raining. Um, but I guess... Fair weather. Fair weather, <laughs> yeah. Fair weather, yeah. <laughs> like to play rugby when it wasn't raining and yeah. snowing or whatever, you know? Well, Dodge, that feels like a positive and natural place to stop, and we'll leave the following years to our future episodes. In the meantime, if you want to hear more like this, as well as interviews with some of the biggest names from business, entrepreneurship, events, and sport, make sure you subscribe and leave us a cheeky five-star review while you're there. We've had some really good guests recently, haven't we, Dodge? Yeah, mate. It's been amazing. It's been such fun. I think we're up to now 30-odd episodes we've done you know we haven't reached out to anyone it's quite it's, it's quite mad how it's gone viral yeah. so quickly and people are emailing in or getting in contact with us saying we'd love to come onto your podcast yeah. and we're doing something right dan yeah well if anyone's got any suggestions of people they think uh, we should get on the pod uh, that'd be interesting but recently if you haven't seen we've had people like uh, dame kelly holmes lawrence delalio my personal fave uh, recently i shouldn't have favorites but was uh, uh, mark omrod because his story he's was, a legend uh, absolute legend and a hero um harrowing story and inspirational so if you haven't heard that uh, yeah. go, and, go and have a listen but some really good guests and we're going to keep them coming we've got loads in the bag uh, to release uh, but when it comes to your story we'll re- revisit that soon and uh yeah, it's been great to catch up with you again, Dodge. Cool. Totally enjoyed it, Dan. I'm looking forward to getting through all these episodes, mate. Good man. Well, see you next time. Nice one. Good man. Cheers, Dodge. Cheers, mate.